Hello, and welcome back to A New Legacy. On this podcast, we have conversations with community leaders at the forefront of creating alternative avenues for safety, healing, and accountability to help lead us out of this crisis of mass incarceration. Yeah, it's been a while since we put out an episode as we've both been working on some cool justice-related projects, but we're happy to be back to offer this conversation with Sonia Shaw about restorative justice. Yeah, so I'll read some quick information about Sonia to help ground the conversation and then we'll just dive right in. Sonia Shah initiated the Ahimsa Collective in 2016, which works both with survivors impacted by violence and people who have committed acts of violence with the goal of addressing harm by replacing systems of punishment with paradigms grounded in healing. Their work engages deep trauma healing and restorative approaches while centering agency, liberation, dignity, transformation, and anti-oppression practices. Sonia is also an associate professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Central to her core values are nurturing community belonging and collective care, healing, compassion, love, and transforming harm. She is a Buddhist and a first-generation immigrant from the northwestern part of India. Hey. Hi, Sonia. How are you? <laughs> Great. You know, maybe I'll kick it off before I introduce the two of you, because I'm really the one who wanted this conversation between the three of us. Sonia, you and I met maybe five or six months ago, and I got to ask you all sorts of questions about restorative justice and the organization that you work with. And what you shared at that point really resonated with me to the extent that I even joined a survivor group, right? A victim offender dialogue survivor group that is part of your organization. And so I've been in that group now for maybe five months, meeting once a month. And I can share more about my personal experience of that at some point, but I'll just first say it's been really amazing. So I've wanted you and Annie to meet and to give her an opportunity to ask you questions and to really get what restorative justice is. So I'm excited to introduce the two of you, Sonia and Annie. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Yeah, same here. Yeah. It's kind of nice in a way, you know, to be the new student sitting at the table. And Jess, you have a bit more experience than I do, but obviously, Sonia, your experience is much more expansive than ours. And there's so much I'm excited to learn from you. That's great. No, excited for the conversation too. Yeah. And we want to get really an overview of restorative justice, you know, and the impact that it has primarily. But we also actually have some tougher questions. Um, and usually we have these recorded conversations with the hope that other people are going to be interested in listening, you know, and kind of educating a lot of like other people. But this conversation is a little more personal for us. So I think we're going to be a little more selfish um, and it feels like we're going out on a limb in recording this conversation. So I just want to acknowledge that, you know, it's, it's a little more vulnerable for us because it's more personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. So thank you for being willing to engage, um, with all that we've got. That sounds great. Yeah. No worries. Be as tough or annoyed as you want to be. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. We'll take that permission. I have some critiques of restorative justice myself. Yeah. Great. That sounds interesting. <laughs> Maybe before we get there, Anne, would you like to first? Yeah, definitely. 
you know, I guess the first question is, could you give us an overview of what restorative justice is for a newbie like me, for anyone listening who maybe has heard the term, but doesn't totally understand what it encompasses, what it's intended for? Maybe we just start there. Yeah. I think to understand restorative justice is to put it in context of this really, this much bigger idea of people, communities, organizations, movements trying to create an alternative approach to addressing harm, to healing harm, to dealing with conflict that's outside of a criminal legal system or isn't dependent on like a prison industrial complex, right? So in its greatest essence, it sits in that space of trying to be an alternative to addressing harm that's really rooted in community. It's meant to be, you know, really centered around not outsourcing, like when a harm happens, not saying, hey, let's just give it to the state to deal with because the state is automatically going to go towards punishing. The state isn't necessarily for the benefits of survivors. Many survivors just feel traumatized by the criminal legal system. There's not a lot of questions about what you want or what you need. And the state tends to take the person who's done harm, put them in a prison and, you know, has a kind of incredibly strong punishment based system that isn't asking what happened, how do you change, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So the essence of restorative justice is to say, what about those things not happening, right? How about we ask victims and survivors what they want and be survivor-focused? How about we get curious and want to know who this person is who's done harm? How do we address that? How do we understand the causes of the cause of why they committed a harm? And that it's partly the community's responsibility to be involved in that conversation. It's not something that should happen, you know, in a prison setting and in a courtroom. Mm. That is, I would say, the essence of restorative justice, transformative justice, and Indigenous peacemaking. I would throw those in there as well. I'd love to hear specifically what your group does, Sonia, and also, you know, this idea of the VOD, the victim-offender dialogue. I'd be curious to know more about what that is, what that looks like. Sure. So I can speak to both my version and the VOD and and our organization as well. I think one thing that's important is like RJ, and I'm using RJ for restorative justice, right? Mm -hmm. It's It's not a panacea. It's not meant to do everything for everybody. It's one strategy to approach a kind of healing, safety, harm conversation. Like, we need everything. We need policy change. We need structural change. We need all those things to happen, actually, even for restorative justice to be successful, right? So we don't have a system right now where, you know, there's nowhere for anyone to go. If something happens, that's a pretty serious harm. We can't just be like, oh, let's just go do some RJ and hope that this person never does anything again, you know, and just be like, oh, yeah, everybody go back to their their homes because that doesn't keep the survivors safe. And it doesn't necessarily do anything to address the issue. So we're not, our society isn't set up in such a way that we can actually use restorative justice to its greatest potential. So when you look at other places, I know people talk about Norway, other or other places that have maybe a gentler way of thinking about what does time away look like or what does it mean to actually be away from your space so that you get time to understand what you've done 
And a survivor gets time to be away from you and be like, this isn't safe to be around this. I say that because I think it's really important to put like RJ in the context of much bigger social understanding of social context and like where we are. In this whole swim of restorative justice, there are so many different kinds of restorative justice processes. So the victim offender dialogue or VOD, because the name is super problematic, is one of the many restorative justice processes that exist Why is the name problematic there? I mean, something about victim and offender, right? Yeah. 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 So the idea around particularly offender, that it traps people in an identity of only being somebody who did a crime, right? And that this person is way more than just the worst thing that they've ever done in their lives. It's probably true of the victim too, right? Like that you don't want to just be reduced to the thing that happened to you. That's right. Some people actually like to be called victims and some people like to be called survivors. Some people like to be called transcenders. If we go with the same theory that you're not just the worst thing that ever happened to you, then we might say person who was harmed, right? Harmed party, responsible party. So, you know, if I had my way, we would change the name to something else. Um, Face-to-face dialogues, you know, something that is just something that just captures what it is as opposed to like a identity trapping. So that's where that name issue comes in. Okay. So you call it a VOD. We just call it a VOD because the name victim offender dialogue or VOD has been like nationally recognized and it's a little too late to just change it and have anybody know what you're talking about. So I think the VOD tends to have this kind of like When people think about restorative justice or alternative process of addressing harm, when you're first learning about it, it's, oh, the thing that everybody thinks about is, yes, it's that dialogue between the person that did harm and the person that was harmed, and they have this incredible moment, and, you know, that's what restorative justice is, right? So it it does have this kind of capturing, like, an essence of, of what RJ is, but... I would say eight times out of 10 people who initiate VODs, it doesn't happen. Usually there's only about two out of 10 that actually go through to the final dialogue because so many things have to be in place in order for two people who have done their work enough to come together to have one of the most difficult conversations of their entire lives. For a survivor, it's probably a range of going through an incredible amount of emotion and grief and loss and anger and timing and dealing with your family members that might disagree with you and so many things, right? To sort of get to the point that might be something that you want to do. And for the person who's done harm, I mean, it's incredible really working with shame, becoming accountable, working through all of their own things to be able to articulate why they committed a harm, which takes a while to get to, right? When you're really not minimizing, not denying, not in a shame spiral, not just trying to get away from facing the thing. And so whether there's a desire or not for that to happen, oftentimes it does happen and oftentimes it doesn't because people aren't quite ready to go through with it. But VOD, for example, is always survivor-initiated. It's not initiated by the person who's done harm. It's something that at any point anyone can say, you know what, this isn't right for me. It's 100% voluntary. We don't coerce anyone to do anything. It's not for berating and, and like putting someone down, but it is okay to express incredible rage and anger. I had a, a VOD I did once where I always remember this moment where the person who was a survivor, was a child sexual abuse. She was abused by her family member for many years. He was incarcerated. 
And, you know, it was really huge for her to get to the point where she was going to face him. And she was really angry. And every once in a while, when we were doing our prep meetings, she would say, is it okay if, like, in the middle of the VOD, I just reach across the table and smack the shit out of him? And we would all just, we, me and my co-facilitator would just start laughing. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, you can't do that. But I was like, well, you, but you can think it. You can think it. And you can even tell him that this is how I feel. This is how angry I am. This is how much you've taken away from me. So all of those expressions are a part of Avad. And it's really also about what is in it for you? What are you going in it for? What do you want for yourself? What do you want for your family? What do you want for your healing? What do you want for your life? Um, hopefully, particularly for survivors, it's about you. It's about what's in your life and what's the journey that you're on. And is this something that is a part of your journey or not? I'm curious how it's going so far, Annie, to hear about it. Yeah, it's just like sparking more questions, lots of thoughts and lots of questions. And maybe maybe before we get into kind of the harder questions, I'm curious to know what is a successful VOD look like? What are the success stories that jump to mind that show kind of the fullest potential of how restorative justice can work? Yeah, no, that's such a great question. I think that success is really determined mainly by the survivor and what they want, and also by the person who's done harm being able to be clear about what they want and how to meet also the needs of the survivor. So I would say it's really dependent on the person more than anything else. I'll say this is true in my conversations, but also like it's true across the board in the research is that most people want to know why. They want to ask specific questions that only the person that did the harm can answer. They want to express anger and grief and rage, sadness, loss. They want to let the person know what it's been like for 20 years for them. Really, you need to hear this. Look me in the eye. You need to hear the things that I have to say to you. Some folks are also in a place of forgiveness. It's not necessary, but that's what comes out. I think it offers clarity. I think it's offered a lot of healing of like people who have searched different ways to make meaning out of incredible suffering and loss, finding a new level of meaning or healing or another piece in the journey of the incredible loss. And so I think that's what I've heard the most as success. And I think for a person who's done harm, it's really their moment to show up with accountability. It's really a moment to show up without making excuses, without minimizing, without like finding a way out, really addressing an incredible amount of shame and seeing how truth can be transcendent for them as well. What happens when we tell the real truth of something? How does that liberate on a more kind of personal, spiritual way, not so much in terms of being incarcerated? Do you mean like the truth of my experience of what that was like, whether it's the person who caused the harm or the person who was harmed, telling the truth? Telling the truth. I did this. I killed your mother. I raped this person. Imagine someone who's done harm actually saying those words, actually like having to hear the impact of that and being able to tell the truth about it and not dive and duck. Yeah, it's kind of intense. I mean, even hearing you just say, yeah, I did that. I killed your mother. You know, are people entering into VODs with the person who has actually committed homicide of a family member? Is that, I imagine they do, but that seems incredibly tricky. 
and challenging. It tends to be... So there are not that many people who reach out to do VODs. Partly it's because people don't know about it, you know, or they don't know that it exists. Partly it's because it's so hard and tricky, and maybe it's just not the thing that you want to do. But I would say that more than half of the survivors who reach out are murder victim family members. So they're homicide victim family members. So mothers, siblings, children. Mothers, siblings, and children tend to be direct kin. There's a lot of reaching out in that way. Yeah, and for us, there's an elephant in the room here for the two of us around, would we ever engage a VOD process with the man who killed Polly? And my answer is no. There's just no, no way. But I do support the idea of restorative justice in general, you know, and I'm wondering if you could maybe speak to when is it not appropriate or this is just a very challenging part of the conversation of like the elephant in the room for us. It cuts pretty close to the bone, you know, it's pretty personal. Absolutely. It's not appropriate if you don't want to. That's the end Uh of the story. All of VOD is, it's another avenue for those who want it. It's not coercive. It's not telling you you should do it. It's not saying that you suck at restorative justice if you don't do a VOD. No, it's just saying, hey, we want to provide as many avenues for healing and accountability as possible. And if so, if you choose so as a victim, as a survivor, here's one. You know, yours to choose or not to choose. No pressure, no nothing. And honoring that victims are allowed to feel everything under the spectrum from advocating for the death penalty to having woken up in spontaneous forgiveness. And I have met both types of survivors and everything in between and people who've changed, gone from one place to the other. So it's a really true moment of meeting people where they are. And there's there's no need if it's not going to serve you, you know, and that's the answer. And nobody should make you feel bad about it. And then you can still say, I'm really glad it's there for people who want it because it's brought them something and yay. And maybe vicariously when I hear them talk, I get something out of it. I learn something more about myself and that's enough. But it doesn't have to be more than that. Yeah, it is so interesting. I think I feel some relief knowing that this isn't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach and that everyone heals differently and everyone's needs are different. And even that forgiveness isn't necessarily the intended outcome. It's it's just a possibility. And I think that this is a place where Jess and I have been talking a lot lately, actually, about the idea of forgiveness as something that's virtuous, right? To be someone who's capable of forgiving. It's, it's almost, uh, I think, in certain framings, it can almost be a little problematic in terms of people wanting to forgive, you know, as evidence of them being more evolved or something. It's like, there's a lot of ways in which I think that word gets so loaded. And it's so tricky because forgiveness doesn't undo the harm. You know, it wouldn't bring our sister back. And I appreciate you acknowledging just the complexity of our position where it's like we're we're really wanting to lift up these other models for justice and healing. And yet this is one that, you know, maybe we we wouldn't actually be able to participate in just because like you, I don't feel that there's that forgiveness or redemption would be appropriate in this case or possible. So my question was was sort of about when this process becomes messy, when it goes sideways, when it does bring someone what it is that they're looking for. How do you navigate that as a facilitator? Yeah, for sure. 
definitely a messy side to <laughs> the process. Mm -hmm. I wanted to say something just to validate what you're saying about, you know, doing this work. Like if somebody killed my child, I have to. Mm -hmm. I don't know or think I'd be able to do a VOD. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, you know, I really, I'd be like, oh, hell no. <laughs> mm -hmm. like, I would be there. And I'm in this work, you know, as a champion of it. And I'm like, ugh. And so there are, I completely agree with you that there's all these like unconscious, conscious, like culturally sort of intimidating ways that people associate forgiveness with enlightenment, right? But I think it's really important to bust that narrative a bit down and really not ascribe any kind of higher transcendence to like something versus the other. It just is what it is and we are where we are. Mm -hmm. And you can think of your work, your justice-based work or your activist work as a kind of enlightenment that is different from this, right? Somebody else isn't going to take it on a structural level. Other people are. You know, I just feel like there's so many ways for us to find our specific intervention space and do what's vulnerable and hard because that feels right. So I just wanted to say that. In terms of the messiness, my experience has been, you know, a real messy place is like, there's like the perfect VOD where everyone's like ready and, you know, able to go there. And then there's the one where one party isn't. And that's difficult, right? Like I've, I've tended to do more of the VODs around sexual harm. There's a trickiness to being directly sexually abused and then facing that person. And the kind of levels of control that are present and the levels of fear that are present. They're different. They're really just different. Everything's different, homicide, sexual harm. And when the violation has been so intimate, you know, I think there's just so much PTSD that I've noticed that really surfaces. And I've had a few situations where these survivors were ready to do this dialogue. And I was like incredibly courageous to decide that they want to talk. You know, one was a child sexual abuse, the other one was a rape. And both of the people who've done harm were just not accountable, you know, mm -hmm. could not get there. And it was like heartbreaking for me and devastating. It's like, you do know what it means that this person actually wants to like talk to you. One of, one of them was completely unaccountable. Another one was like a half accountability. And that was very tricky because as a facilitator, we don't want to, if people want to talk, it's up to them. And we want to support a process no matter what. So we just be incredibly transparent with the survivor of like, hey, this is where this person is at. You might not get a full accountability. You might want to get a half one. Do you still want to go through with it? Here are the kinds of things you might come up against. Here are the things, kinds of things that they might say. What happens if you hear this? How are you going to feel if they deny that this happened? And so it's getting into the nuances of like, as you learn what people are like, being able to really prepare the other side without giving away the story, because the story is for each other to tell, but without sort of the content information. I might pick up specific things and say, what happens if the person, you know, really can be accountable to the fact that they did this to you, but doesn't remember some of the events in the same way? How are you going to feel about that? What happens if that comes up and you ask a question? And they kind of are like dodging. And I'm telling you, this might happen. So do you think that this is something you still want to go through with knowing that could happen? So then it's just levels of transparency, right? I'm just going to tell you exactly what you can expect. And you get to decide still if you want to be in this or not. So I would say that is 
a pretty big messy thing. And then I think the last thing is really about family members, other family members. So you start doing this process, maybe it takes a year or two years, whatever, and your family's like hearing about it, right? And then it's like some people have have feels, they have thoughts, they have opinions. They might want to be involved, they might not want to be involved, they might be annoyed with you or angry with you. And depending on your relationship to that family member, you might also be navigating really tricky waters. It's like I've heard that from other people about when other people start getting involved and folks want to take care of each other like the victim wants to take care of the other victims and so maybe we should bring them in but then it's not really my dialogue anymore and everyone's in a different place and so that's also pretty tricky. Boy, I just, hearing you speak, Sonia, with the degree of care that's being taken at the different steps in acknowledging like what's true on either side and being the liaison, right? And okay, well, this might come up and are you ready for this? And what if this comes up and okay, family members. And it's like looking at the whole picture and facilitating that process. Like it, it seems like, I mean, the word that's coming up, it's silly, but it's like some big adulting that you're doing. There's like, wow, that's a lot to hold in the process, right? There's really so many pieces to it. Yeah, I can imagine that as a facilitator, the capacities that you must have and all that you must be able to hold, like Jess said, I imagine it's taken a lot of practice and a lot of experience to get there. Yeah, and so much of it in the beginning is just about creating trust and relationship mainly with the victims, you know? It's a big deal for someone to go on this journey and then to do it with you and to trust you and to trust each other. And I mean, honestly, I think part of the reason it takes time is because there has to be that trust and depth of relationship between the facilitators and the and the victims in particular, you know, to feel comfortable going into the messy spaces when the difficulty comes, you know, trying to really be in that space with each other. But, you know, I also, I gain so much, you know, just from being with people in their own journey. We all do on the facilitator side. I'm curious, Jess, since you've been doing this work, you've been a part of this group for the past four or five months. If it's okay, I'd be curious to just hear how it's been for you and what what you've experienced and what you've been getting out of it. Yeah, totally. Happy to share some. When I first spoke with you, Sonia, over the summer, I was really interested kind of professionally. I have a facilitation background. I like holding a lot of complexity. You know, I've facilitated challenging conversations. Probably you recall I was sharing more about like, I'm kind of, I'm professionally interested in this. It's true, restorative justice has this buzz term, right? A lot of people are talking about it. And I felt, you know, you invited me into also the possibility of being a part of it for my own personal experience. I acknowledge that too, like I'm a survivor, like I'm a victim, but there's a power in acknowledging that actually. Like, okay, and is there something for me personally here? And even though I have no interest in engaging a VOD process with the man who killed Polly, I'm interested in something else for myself. And being a part of this group has given me something that's been really precious, actually. You know, Annie, it's like this time that we've been engaged in all these conversations, I haven't really had a place to 
share with other survivors about my process, especially as we're stepping up into more advocacy work, like being able to have a place to share about that with other people that kind of understand. Most of the people in this group that I'm in, they've lost a loved one to homicide. And I had never been in a group like that. And even though circumstances are very different, it feels like a place of belonging. There's a couple highlight moments in my very first meeting. Toward the end of the time, it's a two-hour group over Zoom, and toward the end of the time, we're basically in our checkout rounds, and this woman looks at me and she says, I just want to ask you, like, are you doing okay? And there's something about the sincerity of her question. I think people ask each other, like, all the time, like, how are you? It's not like a real, like, I actually care. Like, how are you? In that moment, I actually was brought to tears because it was just like genuine. And I feel that in these groups, like the care. The point of us being there is just to connect and share like from our hearts, like whatever is true. And I'm getting to know these people. I have my facilitator hat on sometimes and I could say from the facilitator hat, I can tell what kind of interventions are coming in, what the facilitators are doing in terms of what they'll invite the participant like me into or to do. And the thing that constantly seems to be the intervention is for the group member to share what their feelings are. This is happening in your life, but how are you doing? How are you feeling? You know, when you say all these things, like, how are you? And it's really, it's so simple. There's a real simplicity to it, but it's very humanizing. I feel very much we're like humaning in a good way, you know? as survivors together. So yeah, even though I never will engage in a process, I don't believe in that kind of process, there's still so much to experience and to be gained by being a part of it. I like that word humaning. I mean, it's interesting. That does make me feel a little bit more, oh, what would that be like? The truth is that of course, trauma can be really alienating, right? And I've never sat in a room full of people where other people had that same shared experience that, that I do. And, you know, in fact, most of my experiences of talking about it with people, I often end up in the role of trying to make them feel better because it's so upsetting for them to hear about. So I end up comforting them. It is really striking just hearing that moment where you get to be on the receiving end of that care with someone who, who does understand and, that's really lovely. And it's also nice to see like, okay, even if, you know, the VOD process wouldn't be appropriate for me or for us in our specific situation, there's still something for us here. And there's something really beautiful about that. Definitely. Yeah. And I hear about other people's VOD process and the things that they're going through. And I'm, I feel so privileged to get to have a little window into what it's like wow, that's what you're dealing with right now. There's so much that comes up when you lose a loved one from the media attention, like other people have had media attention to varying degrees and what do they want to do with it? And is it going to point them in a certain direction with where they put attention or what's their relationship with their family? You know, there's so many complexities and I definitely feel less alone. Yeah, I mean, I, only people that have those shared experiences know certain things that the rest of us don't know. I think that's true in any group. It's, ugh, I don't have to explain, I don't have to teach, I don't have to make you feel better, I can just show up. And I think this idea of survivor groups 
is another avenue, right? Just there's the VOD. We're talking about what are all the avenues and there should be so many more of them. You know, what should be resourced are all of these avenues that help assist survivors go where they want to go, including resources, right? Including compensation, including support groups, including PTSD services, including VODs. There's so many different areas that need to be way more accessible, way more out there. I think there's so few and far between. Yeah, I had no idea that this existed. It's like you really got to look for something to have it show up often. Yeah. I mean, I think the general approach that we're trying to take on this podcast is recognizing how many alternatives there are and how many different avenues are needed to allow people to have accountability, to find healing, to receive the support they need, to actually make communities safer. And these all feel like equally important parts of this larger constellation of things that are needed so that we aren't just relying exclusively on incarceration and punishment. So I am interested in going back to this piece you said early on, Sonia, when you said that you have some critiques of RJ, if you're willing to share some of those with us. Yeah, I think we really have to examine the structures that don't allow alternatives to actually exist. And I think that's why we need all of this big like policy direct action work. Like if we can create some spaces for this work to happen, then what kind of success could we see, which might take time. So we've been talking about if there was one thing I would love to see, because we're trying to do a lot of kind of RJ in the community where people, we, we pretty much take everybody's call, anybody who reaches out to us who doesn't want to trigger the criminal legal system, and we try to see what we can do. And it's really difficult to convince somebody who's done harm to come forward and talk if their lawyer is telling them, don't say a damn thing, right? That's like the stupidest thing you could ever do. So we're stuck in an adversarial system that doesn't even give an avenue for us to sort of think about how to do this. Why is that so hard to do? So it gives people, survivors, victims, who are like, I don't want to call the police. I actually don't want to call them. I do want this person to be accountable, you know, but they're not going to show up because there's always the threat that person can go to jail if the survivor changes their mind. What if they there was some kind of protection? It doesn't seem impossible to do stuff like that in my mind. It's like, why don't we have that? To me, that's the critique. My critique is more of around the social structures that don't allow this work to happen. It's an interesting thing to see how restorative justice is formed in different places. So you go to cities like New York or the Bay Area, and the birth of restorative justice in the Bay Area is very much intertwined with racial justice, with Fania Davis as one of, like, the grandmothers or mothers of restorative justice here. And her organization is Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. It's very African-centered. And, like, there was no part of doing this work that wasn't also about understanding the disproportionate incarceration of people of color, specifically Black folks. Right. In the Bay Area, that's true. In New York, that's true. But you go to a rural area or you go to even, not even a rural area, you go to other cities and there's not enough of a racial justice analysis, integration with some restorative justice folks and practitioners. And somebody I worked with used to say like, if you're just 
looking at the fight in the school between this black kid and the white kid and saying the black kid has to be accountable and the white kid, you're missing the whole context. Like it's about the school, it's about how everybody's treated, it's about understanding the system. And then of course there's some interpersonal accountability as well. But some RJ people that don't have racial justice thinking or analysis go into it and all they see is the micro moment without the context of harm, oppression, and like inequity around it. And I think that's been a big problem in the restorative justice community. And then I think the third thing is just this way that people can call anything restorative justice and get away with it. It's just like, oh yeah, you know, we're doing RJ, we're, but we're locking people up. It's just like, no, that's not what it is, you know? And it causes great confusion. People get confused and don't understand, and then it just feels like misunderstood. So I think those are my biggest critiques. Yeah. It seems like at its core, though, in terms of the process, those are a little bit more systemic critiques that have it be that RJ isn't flourishing as it could, but that really at the heart of it, it's a good thing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like if you took wellness and you said, (laughs) choose yoga or acupuncture or massage therapy, you choose the modality that works for you, right? And yoga doesn't work for everybody and neither does acupuncture. Like AA doesn't work for everybody. It's just an option. Choose your wellness strategy, right? And at its core, people who like doing yoga, it's great. I think it's the same thing here. It's, hey, here's an option. If this works for you and if it doesn't, that's cool. There's so many other ways we can get to healing. There are other ways we can get to accountability. It doesn't have to be this one, but here's here's one, you know. So I think I think I think of it like that. Like, can we just see it as an option, not as like the strategy, you know, to to end all incarceration? It's just an option. Could it also be a strategy? Like I can imagine a VOD happening where the person who did the harm is still incarcerated, right? You work with people like that that are still incarcerated, right? And maybe they get up for parole. And maybe even the person who was harmed through the process of reconnection ends up finding connection and seeing the humanity and all of that and is even potentially part of the parole process. Could it be on the part of the person who caused harm who's incarcerated to actually be a part of the process with their own agenda of getting out of prison. Do you ever see that kind of thing happening? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting thing, right? Like, I'm trying to think about even when we've done groups in prison, some people are just there to get the chrono, right? Like, they're just there to check off a box and say, hey, you know, if I did this group, I know it's going to look good on my resume kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But there is a reality that... That's nice. That's cool. That's how you started. Good luck getting through this whole thing because it's a process of getting deep and going raw and like getting into your shame and getting you. There's a place where at some point you can't hide anymore. It's not going to happen. And you could go through the motions and in a program, for example, you could get a chrono, but it's not going to mean anything if you can't sit in the boardroom and articulate. What's a chrono? Oh, you can get like a certificate, you know, Uh that you completed something. But you're going to sit in front of a bunch of commissioners. It's like the articulation is the last thing. I used to bug out when I was going into prisons and I would hear people try to be accountable 
for the harm they caused. And I was like, God, if they just said it like this, it would sound so much better. In my mind, I never said that out loud, but I was like, why is this person? And then I realized, oh, being able to truly articulate it is probably like the last thing that happens. You actually have to like understand your own stuff, go through the cause of why I did it, understand your own trauma, understand like how it relates to violence. And then the articulation starts to come out. So I don't think, I think it's similar to the VOD thing. Like it's, that's nice that you could get into a room, but you know, if you're a year or two years into something and the facilitators don't feel like you can't, we're not hearing any accountability because it's like you're in like having to look this person in the eye and hear for hours and talk for hours about the thing that happened. It'd be really hard to do. I can imagine that it is in the back of some folks's mind. Oh, this will look good on my resume. Honestly, when is it not in the back of my mind? Oh, this will be good for me in these ways. So is that wrong to think that? It might be there. I don't think it would actually go through. I want to go back to forgiveness, if we could, because I think that restorative justice has a reputation of like love and lighters that are just somehow gonna, what is it? Is the forgiveness even real or they're like, it's justifying the behavior of the person or I just think that this whole piece of forgiveness is so charged. And I think a lot of people would want to avoid restorative justice or anything like it because it's got this sort of association of forgiveness and it's not grounded in reality or something like that. Even though I know that people, as you said, they have spontaneous experiences of forgiveness. I guess I'm just like, I want to go back to that because I don't really know, like, how, I don't know how forgiveness happens. And then you say that it's not required to forgive, to be a part of this at all. And yet... It seems like it has such a, an association with forgiveness somehow. So do you share that perception of like how it is that people think of restorative justice? Yeah, maybe not so much just because I'm in it a lot and I don't yeah. see a lot of forgiveness, to be quite honest with you. Okay, <laughs> that's good like, to know. That's really interesting. I, yeah, I wow. see a lot of expression. I think forgiveness is really complicated and tricky and it's nobody's job to tell anybody else where it lands or if they should or shouldn't. But that's also coming from someone who's in it a lot. I feel like because RJ is like one of the very few areas where we actually ask survivors, like, how are you doing? And, hey, we care. Everything gets loaded on this process, right? But you you must be about forgiveness, or I'm not about that. We're not trying to say it's one or the other. We're not trying to say be angry or forgive. We're just trying to say here's a process. It totally makes sense. I think that it's lauded in some ways similarly to how it can be vilified, which is really actually removed from the context in which it's intended to function. And it's been so useful to really get a deeper cut of that and to really understand that justice doesn't mean forgiveness is better than punishment. Restorative justice doesn't mean fill in the blank. It's really one way of many that people can come to find some healing, can hopefully create accountability. There needs to be a lot more out there for survivors. There needs to be a lot more understanding of just what that experience is, you know, what it means 10 years, five years, 15, 20 years down the line in order to us to get to the place where it feels like it's even palatable to talk about forgiveness on a mass scale. Like, why are we even talking about that? There's so many other things that we need to talk about first before we Absolutely. get there. You want to race to the end product, but the end product is 
you know, skipping how everybody feels. And that's not okay. That's not okay. And maybe 20 years of process to get there or however long, you know. Right. Yeah, that resonates with me a lot because just personally, some of the core values that I really hold are being emotionally and intellectually honest and also really rigorous and not bypassing what is needed in order to forgive or whatever the thing is, because that may or may not be the right goal for you. That may or may not be your path to healing. And you can't skip over things that will actually get you there. I love that something that restorative justice is really built around, it seems like, and that that is what the process is, coming to what is right for you. Yeah. But it doesn't change the perception of RJ as forgiveness, right? Or getting letting people off the hook. Letting people off the hook or love and roses, whatever you said, that thing about just, oh yeah, light a candle and love. It doesn't stop that perception. And it it's because our sort of culture is very black and white thinking. It's either like prison or like love yeah. and candles. There's no gray area nuance in there yeah. that we're kind of used to talking about. Yeah. Hopefully we brought a little bit of that in today. Yeah. Hopefully we brought some gray in. <laughs> Complex. There's a lot of complexity. Sonia, tell us what's needed for your organization at this point. You know, what do you see is needed for California? And then also, how can people get involved? For California, it's the support for really good work happening with different organizations, like really like robust support for them, what, whatever that looks like, whether it's volunteering resources, whether it's opening doors, whether it's just being a cheerleader from the outside. So I think the support for the work, and then I think we need some big social structure work, you know, big policy change work is like, none of this is gonna happen without that. One of the things that we're really committed to is getting back to people. So we hypervigilantly check our contact at ahimsacollective.net. And I think if you're curious about the work, if you're interested in a VOD, if you just want to know more, if you don't want to call the police and you're trying to figure out what to do, you know, that's the best way to get in touch with us. And we try really hard to get back to people and put them into the right lane, basically. That feels so good. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, for joining us. I'm so happy to introduce you to Annie, and thanks for sharing so much. Yeah, it was nice to meet you, Annie. It was really wonderful to meet you, and, you know, I might be reaching out soon to see what lane I might fit into. Okay, so that was amazing. How was that conversation for you? So, to be honest, that conversation wasn't what I expected. I went into it with a lot of curiosity and interest, but I think I was expecting to feel a bit more polarized or somehow more in opposition to the frameworks of restorative justice, just because in our specific case, a victim-offender dialogue isn't something that we're interested in pursuing. But, you know, regardless of whether we would personally ever participate in a VOD, I absolutely see the value of this work. And it's so important that survivors have this kind of an avenue to explore their own healing. Since we recorded this conversation, I've actually talked to other survivors who have initiated this process. And what I've seen is this really large community of survivors who honestly have more capacity for compassion and understanding for how harm happens than our justice system does. And for a system that claims to represent people who have been harmed, why is it that a person who has experienced, you know, the, the deepest pain of their lives can see a clearer path to redemption for the person who harmed them than our justice system? 
And like Sonia said, this is just one path of many, and it may not be right for everyone. Um, but the point is that it's focused on the actual needs of survivors. It centers their healing, and it enables accountability for the person who did harm. It's actually unbelievable to me that this isn't already happening on a larger scale in our justice system. We really need more of these kinds of methods that not only bring survivors healing, but allow people who have hurt someone to understand the depth of harm they caused and take accountability for it, because that's, that's really the kind of work that causes transformation. Thank you for listening to this episode of A New Legacy. To stay in the loop, please go to our website, anewlegacy.com. Legacy.com.